0: Welcome everyone you're listening to another episode of coffee talks with Mike hope you enjoy the book this week and we're going to get into it. Hello everybody welcome to another episode of coffee talks with Mike I am back in the groove here for. regularly scheduled time together. Uh, I was MIA last week. If you weren't aware, I was actually speaking at a summer camp in Michigan, which was a blast. Um, Awesome, awesome time. But I was anticipating having uh, internet access there. But silly me, 2021 summer camps don't have Wi-Fi. Um, But that's okay. Give you all a break from my voice. And it let me kind of have some focus there but it was such a, such a good time to just spend time with people to jet ski and water tube. Of course. Um, if you've never been to the great lakes or uh, Lake Michigan in particular, uh, it's amazing giant sand dunes. It's just totally bizarre. It's jarring, but it's a really good, good time. Uh, during that week, of course, many people wanted to talk about all kinds of things. And you know me, you've listened to some of these episodes. Lewis came up multiple times, but I was really trying to think about what I wanted to do for today. And I've had a number of books on my kind of to to read list. And now that it's August and school starts back up in about a month, I'm getting a little nervous about not having time to read what I want. So I was like, all right, let me start checking through some of this. Uh, to read list and so i i've had this book for like maybe two months that i picked up yesterday on a whim to see how it would go and it's called prayer in the night for those who work for those who work or watch or weep and it's by tish harrison warren um now tish is uh she is a local local to pittsburgh area um Anglican priest, I believe it's Anglican, um, and she authored another book called The Liturgy of the Ordinary, which I may not have talked about on this podcast yet, but I do recommend, and it's basically just talking about the significance of everyday life and the ordinary things, whether it's Um, making a sandwich for your kids in the morning or cleaning your house or driving and how all of those things can be liturgical in our lives. If we are mindful enough to view them that way. So that's an awesome book. I'll probably tap into that at some point, but this is her new book that she wrote. It uh, it came out in 2020. She put a uh, author's note in the beginning saying like the final manuscript was turned in Um, Easter of 2020. So like right when COVID was starting. So the book doesn't really address COVID, but obviously can be related to that since it deals with suffering. So that's what's going on with this, this book, this episode. And I enjoy her writing, her style, and I enjoyed the prologue and first chapter. So I just wanted to share that with you guys today. So a little background before I actually get into the book. Night is a very significant image in the Christian tradition. And in particular, um, sometimes there's this phrase, and, and she likens it to um, this person, but uh, I figured I'd give you as a preface. The, there's this phrase called the dark night of the soul. And that is associated typically with St. John of the cross in the early church. And the dark night of the soul is a time of suffering and grief and doubt and struggle and wondering like, when will this end? And so um, that is kind of what this book seems to me to be about. Like how do we pray in those times of suffering and struggle and whatnot um, when when we don't know what we're supposed to be doing? So she starts off in the prologue kind of just setting up the book in that way. And she's giving a personal anecdote about, um, a struggle she was having. Uh, uh I don't even want to share necessarily the specifics, but, um, as she goes to the hospital and like is worried about her life, she cries out to her husband and wants to pray the Compline prayer. Um, I think it's Compline. It's a liturgical prayer and book of common prayer. And, um, There are a number of phrases that come out of that, like, Lord, grant us a peaceful night and a perfect end. Um, Keep us as the apple of your eye. Hide us under the shadow of your wing. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Defend us from the perils and dangers of this night. Um, And so she's like, "Hey, why did I suddenly desperately want to pray the compliment underneath these fluorescent lights in the hospital room? Well, it's because I wanted to pray, but I couldn't drum up the words, you know, amidst my suffering, amidst the struggle, amidst all of those things. I just I didn't have the words. I couldn't think I needed something to say. I had all these feelings in me, but I didn't know how to communicate them. Um, and that's why I wanted to comp prayer. And that's something if you listened to the maybe the first episode I did um, on Lewis from Letters to Malcolm prewritten prayers. The idea of pre-written prayers is sometimes like poo-pooed and looked down upon because, it's like, oh, it's not spontaneous. But often, what those prayers are doing is tapping us in, tapping us into the Christian tradition—two uh, thousand plus years of people praying these prayers. Sometimes, and it's also helping us give words to feelings we have but don't know how to articulate. And especially in a stressful, like dire moment when you don't know what to say, I'm sure a pre-written prayer is really, really helpful and significant. Um, so she goes on a little bit here and just talks about how, like, when you're heartbroken and your faith is struggling, spontaneity is not the thing that's going to come to you in that moment. And in the hospital, she says, I, I was not trying to express my faith to announce my wavering uh, devotion to a room full of busy nurses, nor was I trying to call down my sky fairy to come save me. Um, She's referencing the popular atheist Richard Dawkins there. Um, She says, through prayer, I dared to believe that God was in the midst of my chaos and pain, whatever was to come. I was reaching for a reality that was larger and more enduring than what I had felt in the moment. And she likens this to Mark nine twenty four. That's the, uh, the passage of the man who says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. When Jesus says, if you have the will to believe, um, then this can be done. And she says that all of her prayers seem to be kind of a form of that prayer. And so she ends this prologue by saying faith is more a craft than a feeling. It's a series of actions rather than a one time emotion. Um, and we have to remember that grace is the first and last word of the Christian life. And all of us are desperately in need of mercy and are deeply loved. So faith is always a gift. She ends with this quote that I think is really, really significant. And it's not hers. It's from, uh, Madeline Langle, maybe, uh, it says any good work of art is more and better than the artist." Shakespeare wrote better than he could write. Bach composed more deeply and more truly than he ever knew. Rembrandt's brush put more of the human spirit on canvas than could be comprehended. Um, A gardener can't make daffodils grow, nor can a baker force the alchemic glory of yeast and sugar, and yet we are given the means of grace that we can practice, whether we feel like it or not. Craftsmen, writers, brewers, dancers, potters, they show up and work and they participate in mystery. They take up a craft again and again on bad days and good days, waiting for a flash of mercy and a gift of grace. Um, yeah, I love that idea that the, the art is more and better than the artist. And what that means is that like, all of us, we produce art. And even if you're not an artist, necessarily, you produce art in one of your areas of life, you could be amazing at producing spreadsheets, like that is a need that and it is an art when you're good at it, you might be a literal artist painting on a canvas, you might be an amazing cook, you might be someone great with words, your art is has the capacity to be greater than you because it'll last longer than you in a lot of cases. Um, I was listening to this podcast yesterday that was interviewing Matt Damon um, or the podcast people were, and they were talking about Goodwill Hunting. If you don't know Goodwill Hunting, it's a very explicit movie because it's shot in Boston. So they drop the F-bomb like every 10 seconds, but amazing plot, amazing writing. um, And the guy was asking, "Why do you think Goodwill Hunting was so successful?" He's like, "Honestly, you probably have a better answer than me, you know, because I uh, I did that movie, I wrote it, and it was great, but it's been so long." He's like, "All right, my theory is that Goodwill Hunting is so successful as a movie. Um, I guess I should pause and summarize it. Goodwill Hunting is the story of a um, genius, poor Boston guy who works as a janitor at, at uh mit i think so he's a genius but no one knows it because he's poor and he works as a janitor he solves a math problem and it's the whole story of him kind of facing his demons getting help kind of tapping into this mystery, mysterious gift he has so the guy says i think that you are or i think that everyone enjoyed that movie it took the world by storm because it reminded us all that we believe we have something to offer the world, but nobody can see us. It, says, yeah, it reminds everyone that there's something in us crying out that like needs to be expressed. And we feel like people around us don't fully appreciate it. Sometimes we don't even know what the thing in us is, and yet we know it needs to be given. And I thought that was a really cool way of talking about what's happening in that movie but also thinking about how most people express themselves and I think it's similar to this quote about art and artists and art being better than the artist like um, everyone thinks that they are good at something everyone thinks that they have something to offer Um, of course and beyond that everyone feels like on some level people don't really understand them um so i think that ultimately what we do with our art or what with our craft or with our work um reveals something about us how we view ourselves and how we believe we can impact the world around us sometimes the most what seem like the most meaningless tasks and actions end up having the biggest impact on the people around us. Sometimes the things that we work the hardest on have little to no impact on the people around us. Um, But we all have something we want to offer. Sometimes life is just about finding our craft, finding our arts. One of the problems I think of our society is thinking that we have to monetize our passion and our art as if like you have to make money off of the thing you love most. Um, like you can't just have hobbies anymore. Your biggest hobby has to be your job. And I don't think that's true. It's like, no, if it is good art, not only is it going to draw other people, um, kind of in, but it's also going to point people towards God, even if it seems like the most, I don't know, irrelevant art, um, because God is present in all of those places. So I really love that art quote about the significance of the art kind of going beyond the artist. Uh, That was all from the prologue of this book. I just want to point to a few things from chapter one. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um, It's not like it's Lewis. Ha ha ha. But she was just talking about during this series of struggles, um, she was living in pittsburgh she still is and they kind of her and her husband in a dark way renamed pittsburgh pits of pit of despairsburg because literally like 17 things went terribly wrong instantly like within days of moving to pittsburgh um and she talks about the struggle of being a priest who couldn't pray She says, I didn't know how to approach God anymore. There were too many things to say, too many questions without answers. My depth of pain overshadowed my ability with words. She references Martin Luther here. It says, Martin Luther wrote about seasons of devastation of our faith. When any naive uh, confidence in the goodness of God withers away, it's then that we meet what Luther calls the left hand of God. Um, now, the right hand of God has always talked about victorious, powerful, ruling, etc. That's why Luther's using kind of this play on words with the left hand of God being the time where all of this struggle exists. And she talks about the history of this idea of night and how night, you know, right now, like the world never sleeps, right? You might go to sleep, but somewhere else someone's awake and, you know, there's stocks being traded and all kinds of things. But for the majority of human history, 99% of human history, night was simply terrifying. Nighttime was when everything went wrong. There weren't streetlights. Night was mystery in the worst sense. Uh, she quotes Edmund Burke in the 18th century saying that um, there was no other idea so universally terrible in all times and in all countries as darkness. Because nighttime, <laughs> was the time of not knowing. And that's why it's become this very significant image in um, the Christian tradition. Uh, And she brings up St. John of the cross and the dark night of soul, spiritual crisis, et cetera, et cetera, as I already mentioned. Um, But when we, even us, like we have lights, we have our phones, we have all kinds of access to things right now, but even if you're a night owl, which I consider myself to be, Uh, She says, how many of us lie awake at night, unable to fall back asleep, worrying about the day ahead, thinking about everything that could go wrong or counting our sorrows Um, in the daylight, we're distracted by all of the things going on At, at moments we're even productive. But at night, at some point you feel alone, even in a house full of sleeping bodies, it reminds you of your mortality, it reminds you of your smallness, it can amplify your grief and anxiety. Um, we are all so vulnerable. And I think that was interesting. I I guess it didn't dawn on me like how dark night was, but I actually lost power, um, two days ago, the night I got home from Michigan. And as I lost power, I always look outside because I live across the street from the church. And when the church is without power, it's not like we have a billion lights on. You don't notice how many light, like little lights exist in your area until they don't go on. And the church just became this abyss of darkness. Like there was nothing to see. Like the moon is trying to shine behind it, but the the church was just like this dark blob and it was huge. And it was like, wow, that is so ominous. You look out, there's no streetlights. You're like, wow, this is what life was for the majority of people for a long, long, long time. Yeah. I get it. Night. That's hard. Um, During one of my talks last week, I quoted um, Blaise Pascal, who says something to the effect of, I kind of adapted the quote, but you'll know what I mean. He he says that all of humanity's problems can be tied to the fact that we are not good at going into a room alone in silence. So I kind of changed it to make it more simple of saying, all of our problems are because we don't know how to sit alone in silence. He he kind of gets chopped up in the words there, but what he's explaining is we have an inability to to sit in silence with our own thoughts, feelings, anxieties, griefs, dreams, etc. And think about it; that's gotten even worse in the modern era in 2021. Like very seldom do you meet someone who can do dishes or chores or eat or cook without having a podcast on or music on. Maybe you're doing that right now. Um, Maybe you're listening to this and you're doing it because you don't want to sit in silence. I read this book that, uh, you know, I just find out that every episode, I'm just talking about other books I'm going to do with you guys sometime, but uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, amazing book, can't recommend it enough. But in there, he talks about silence and he talks about our inability to sit in silence and he says you know why what what voices are we trying to drown out and at first I was like I'm not drowning out voices I I just like to learn all the time I like my music and then for two days I tried my hardest to do dishes in silence and to do laundry in silence and to not like play music as I walked from my house to a coffee shop and it was grueling because it turned out there were all kinds of things i started to think about that i didn't want to think about and i was like oh my gosh maybe i am trying to silence these voices in my head i don't have voices in my head don't don't check me into a an asylum but you know what i'm saying right like it turns out like we struggle with silence because there's a lot of things that are going on subconsciously that we don't address nighttime historically in cultures all around the world, not just Christian culture has been the symbol of dealing with those things because there's no escape. Um, So she points to the word vulnerable being um, coming from a Latin word, which means to wound. So to be vulnerable is to be woundable. And often we try to pretend we are not able to be wounded. We're not vulnerable. Um, But the reality is we are, and we need to own our mortality and our vulnerability because that's what actually enables us to live better. Um, so she talks again, kind of wraps up the chapter with Compline prayer, um, that kind of prayer in the time of sorrow. And she, so she says, for most of my life, I didn't even know there were different types of prayer. Prayer meant one thing only, talking to God with the words I came up with. It was supposed to be unscripted, self-expressive, spontaneous, spontaneous. Um, and I still pray this way every day, but prayer is a vast territory with room for silence and shouting, for creativity and repetition, for original and received prayers, for imagination and reason. Prayer forms us. And, um, she points to, um, this quote by Stanley Harawas, definitely messing that name up <clears throat> about evangelicalism. I thought this is really interesting, especially as we continue to try and change the life of the church. Stanley says evangelicalism is constantly under the burden of reinventing the wheel and you just get tired. And he calls himself an advocate for practicing the prayer office, which is like getting up in the middle of the night to prayer, because it's not something you make up. It's something you, you lean into. It's something that's already been happening. It's, you know, in a room, sometimes we, we ask one person to pray for everybody and we all pray that person's prayer kind of with them. And for some reason we get weird when we like read a written prayer, but it's the same thing practically. And in fact, it's Almost more powerful in that you're reading a prayer that's probably read, been read by hundreds of thousands of people, if not more, over periods of time. It's giving you words, but it's also connecting you to the body of Christ in a new way. You're not supposed to reinvent the wheel. I think one of the, the problems the church falls into is we try to reinvent the wheel all the time. We think we need to come up with some new innovative thing. And it's like, God does new things, absolutely. But sometimes, We are exhausting ourselves because we are getting bored. And I don't think that's really what we're called to. Um, So, Compline prayer. This is her big pitch for it. And I think it's a good one. She says, The Compline is what she returned to time and time again in her dark nights, in her struggle, in her vulnerability, because Quote, I needed words to contain my sadness and fear. I needed comfort, but I needed the sort of comfort that doesn't pretend that things are shiny and safe or right in the world. I needed comfort that looked unflinchingly at loss and death. And now she's going to use a couple words you know, a couple lines. The Lord Almighty grants us a peaceful night and a perfect end. She's like a perfect end to what? I think an end to the day, the week, my life. We pray, into your hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. These are the words Jesus spoke as he was dying. We pray, be our light in the darkness, Lord, and grant mercy. Defend us from all perils and dangers of the night, because we're admitting that left to ourselves, um, I go to great lengths to avoid facing these things. And we end by saying that we awake that when awake, we may watch with Christ and asleep, we may rest in peace. She says, you know, when we're drowning, we need a lifeline and our lifeline in grief cannot be mere optimism that maybe our circumstances will improve because we know that may not be true. We need practices that don't simply, um, I don't push our fears or pain to the side, but that teach us to walk with God in the crucible of our own fragility. And I think that's really good stuff. Uh, you know, this theme has come up time and time again um, in my own life in the last few years, probably in previous episodes. I preached a sermon recently on Job about this kind of thing, like joy and faith and hope are not Toxic positivity. It's not toxic optimism. It's not just hang in there, champ. It's going to get better. That's not what faith is. Because what happens if it doesn't get better? Like, are we now like questioning our God? Like, no, like faith is being able to look in the face of these dark moments and say, I trust you anyways. And so, prayer in the night, prayer in the struggle, prayer in the dark moments. Um, we need the words to look unflinchingly in the face of grief and sorrow and say, we still follow because there is going to be grief and sorrow that come and that's going to be hard, but it does nobody any good to pretend it's not as bad as it is. And I'm sure everyone listening knows what it's like to be on the receiving end of some really bad advice when you're going through struggles. All right, well, everything happens for a reason. That really doesn't make anyone feel better. So we should just retire that phrase. What we need is a faith that allows us to sit with those feelings and trust God to hear our hurts. Um. Yeah, I really enjoyed the first uh, chapter and prologue to this book. I'm going to try to knock it out this week. Um, Hope you guys enjoyed it too. If uh, you want to keep listening, uh, there are like 14 episodes now of other things we've done. So you can go back, check those out. I will be as diligent as possible to be getting episodes out every Tuesday. Hope you'll check those out and we can go from there. But Until next time, have a wonderful day and lean in wherever you feel God leading you today.